0: Uh, we're back to Proverbs. I want to just not, not first read, read a verse, but point you just to a, a pattern and something interesting you see in the Proverbs. Uh, again, I'm pointing to Proverbs so much because it's, it is a book deeply concerned with parenting, deeply concerned with the household and wisdom in the household. It's very practical, and, and I think that's what we're here to do today is not, not just get the theory, but really try to understand how that theory sticks to landing in our lives Uh, In the first nine chapters of Proverbs, one of the methods that Solomon uses to instruct his sons, and the book is written mainly to sons, it has uh, a lot of implications for anybody, men, women, married, unmarried, children, adult, grandparent, Uh, it has wisdom for everybody there, but it's mainly aimed at, at instructing sons, and one of the things that he does to spur his sons to pursue wisdom is to personify wisdom as a beautiful woman, and, and I, know, I noticed as I wrote that down this week just how politically incorrect that is. He's like, son, I want you to chase after uh, wisdom and pursue it. Hmm, what will make you want to chase after wi- wisdom? I know, let's pretend like it's a beautiful woman. <laughs> and he's like, go get her. Like, that's, that's literally what he's doing in the book. Uh, one of the, the most foundational insights that Lady Wisdom says, I think it's this programmatic verse for the whole book, that, and it's, it's from her lips she uh, says, Proverbs 8, 35, and 36, For whoever finds me, again, Lady Wisdom, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And this is the key part. All who hate me love death. All who hate me love death. Everybody who hates wisdom, everybody who hates Lady Wisdom, loves death. And in, in, in that principle, once you get that principle, you start to see it everywhere you start to see that it actually explains just so much of the world that we live in. Those who hate wisdom love death. It's programmatic for understanding not just Proverbs, but also exegeting culture. Understanding any culture that has rejected God. What does it mean if you reject God? It means you're rejecting wisdom, because wisdom is found in God, and the fear of God only. It's found nowhere else. That if you reject God, you therefore reject wisdom. And what you are doing every time you reject wisdom, whether you want to be doing this or not, is embracing death. You're saying, I would like to reap death in this area of my life. If I reject sexual wisdom, I'm embracing sexual death. If I reject theological wisdom, I'm embracing theological death. If I Any area that you, you reject wisdom, you're embracing death. Okay, one of the things that this verse illuminates in, 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 in actually kind of particularly harsh clarity in our culture is the, the, the antipathy of our culture to, to femininity in general and motherhood particularly. Our culture is deeply um, antagonistic towards motherhood. It has a hard time sa- praising motherhood. It has a hard time saying that motherhood is a good, is a, is a great good, and not even maybe a lesser good among a plethora of goods where you should probably choose other goods over that good. Our culture has a hard time saying that. Why? Well, because we have uh, rejected wisdom, and so we, we hate, or so we love death. Um, th- just think about what we glorify in terms of femininity. This is another one of those. I'm not trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative, but I'm trying to get us to just think about... Think about the ideals that our culture upholds for for women, for femininity and for motherhood. We glorify a vision for femininity that ends up making the ideal woman an intentionally barren woman, an intentionally barren woman, often a debt-laden, intentionally barren woman who is doing her best imitation of being a man as far from keeping and cultivating a fruitful home as possible. The ideal for womanhood in our culture is as far as we can get it from being a keeper at home. Uh, you can watch almost any like blockbuster film, action films especially, do this. Uh, they try to push the narrative that women are basically men, that there's no ontological difference. There's no difference in, in essence or being between maleness and femaleness, masculinity and feminine, men and women. Um, th- they push this idea by, by portraying uh, like a female uh, star in an action film will often be portrayed as a childless, unmarried expert in hand to hand combat who can beat up men who are 100 pounds heavier than her and like superiorly armed. Right? <laughs> Think about how many times that idea is portrayed in, in a movie. And, and to do that, what's interesting is we actually have to use CGI. You, you just can't, that doesn't exist in the wild. It just, it's just not, not something you see out there. Uh, not to say that a woman who who learns, like, maybe self-defense. That's a great idea. You should learn self-defense. Like, let's get some equalizers. Men are bigger. Let's get some And men are evil. So let's get some equalizers, like a gun and a taser and some pepper spray and some jujitsu. And I'm fine with all of that. But all things equal, being equal, <clears throat> it's very difficult for even... Uh, maybe in the top ten percent of physically fit women, to take on even the bottom forty percent of physically fit men. there's a reason for that. There's ontological differences. There are differences, creational differences there, and our culture is doing everything it can to kind of plug its ears, uh, p- put its hands over its eyes, and say, "We don't want to see that we're going to We're going to write stories. You can see a, a culture's values through its stories. We're going to write stories where um, we can live a different reality. So our cultural vision. Has upheld a vision of feminine flourishing that, that it looks like this, and this is kind of a this is a gross caricature, but uh, it captures a lot of the essence of the cultural narrative on femininity. Uh, we would start like this: we'd say we make let's make sure that our girls are chemically sterile from a young age with hormonal birth control. Don't worry about the consequences of massive long-term chemical alteration of your body chemistry. Number two, let's normalize culturally in our media and our stories uh, everywhere we can. Uh, promiscuous sex from a young age with multiple partners. If uh, somehow like, a child manages to slip through our gauntlet, uh, then we will pay an assassin with a medical degree to chop up the child and vacuum the child out of the womb. This is normal. This is happening how many times today? It's a Saturday in Illinois? I don't know. In, in Utah, it'd be eight. There'd be at least around average of eight women today in Utah who will go down. There's only two places you can do this in, that I know of in northern Utah. And there will be eight women on average who will do that. Exactly what I just said. It's not a caricature. That's happening. And we're a conservative. We're a red state. Um, Let's encourage our girls to to saddle themselves with massive student debt uh, to to get a degree, to get a job, to delay marriage until the late 20s. I'm pro-educating women. I'm pro-women getting degrees. Don't hear me say anything different. Uh, If a woman does find herself married, make sure she gets a dog and avoids children for at least half a decade. At least half a decade. I've done a lot of premarital counseling. Probably eight out of ten couples that you sit down with as a pastor and you say, "Let's talk about kids. Let's talk about the goodness of kids." And and a lot of times, Christians, these are Christians, they'll say, "We we are definitely we're we're totally pro kid in 2026. We're totally ready for kids in 2028. We're totally ready for kids and let's let's we've got to settle in for five or ten ten years." Um, so avoid children for at least half a decade. Use that time, preferably, um, to advance your career um, in attempts to pay off those loans over the next decade. Uh, if you do have kids, make sure that you only have one or two. And be sure that we farm the parenting of our kids out as much as possible to others. So uh, daycares and, uh, and a school of some sort so as not to harm your career. Okay, That's a little bit of a caricature. It's a little ham-fisted, but that story has been lived out tens of thousands of times Ten, in, in this state, in this region, over the last 10 years. Tens of thousands of times. That story is the real story of real people here. And, and that story is being upheld as, this is a pretty good vision for femininity. This is a pretty good idea of how to order uh, your life. Young ladies, we, we tell our young ladies this through our culture, our cultural medias. Um, and, and I hope you see... How basically all of that, it's almost if you were to design a system to make it as hard as possible for a woman to be a keeper at home. That would be it. Think about the way student loans alone function in that. man. The only successful educated woman is one who goes to college. Okay, so what am I going to do? I've got to get maybe ten dollars or twenty dollars or thirty dollars or $40,000 in debt, and then I get out of it, and what do I, what I do? Well, maybe I'm going to get a $40,000 a year job. How much time is it going to be? And then by the time kids happen, we have to pay for daycare now to keep paying off the student loans. You see how this is basically aiming to keep women as far from the home as possible, as long as possible. Okay, those who hate wisdom love death. We have an enemy. He hates us. He hates God. He hates everything made in the image of God. Think about, kind of in a disconnected way, think about the narratives of overpopulation and state-sponsored climate engineering. Like I'm not commenting on the science of climate change right now. If I did it, I'm not going to. Um, But think about just those two as narratives, that the world has too many people. Look, I flew over southern Illinois. The world does not have too many people. (laughs) There's room. There is fertile land. Like there's plenty of space. Go to Utah. Like we're all bunched up in like this little little circle. There's a whole state out there. Go to Wyoming. If you don't believe me, just go to Wyoming. Go to Russia. Um, the narratives of overpopulation are basically that God has made a world, or that nature, Mother Nature's made a world where there's a fixed pie of resources. And human ingenuity doesn't make it bigger. Taking dominion and subduing the Earth doesn't make it bigger, which it does, by the way. It's just a fixed pie and it's a it's a zero-sum game. That the the game, if there's new people, they're gonna take resources from somebody else. Instead of viewing the people the way the Bible does, viewing the people as resources that expand the pie and actually serve other people. More people is good for other people, is is the world God made. These, these issues are basically designed to mentally sterilize our whole cultures, to put up huge mental and cultural barriers around feminine fruitfulness homemaking, things that were culturally normal for thousands of years, families with five-plus children. Uh, things, I'm reading William Googe right now, a theologian from a couple hundred years ago. He had 13 children. This was normal. Eight of them made it to adulthood. So, I mean, there was a high infant mortality rate. But 13 kids, that was very normal. Our great-great-grandparents wouldn't consider the modern Mormons weird. They would say, like, why don't you guys have any kids? That was... <laughs> 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 like the Roman Catholic Irish... Man, they'd be like, those Mormons, man, they're really slacking. They only have eight kids. <clears throat> I'm not saying eight kids is the idea. I'm not saying thou shalt have nine kids. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying let's think about the narratives that our culture is portraying as feminine flourishing, household flourishing, and ask the question of why. Like, why is this narrative the norm? What is it, what is it pushing against? It's pushing against um, Fruitfulness. In locations where this this cultural ethos is even more entrenched than our own America, this is entrenched but not nearly as entrenched in places like Europe, Um, there are whole cultures that are the fruit of Christendom, that were basically the fruit of massive Christian civilization building for 1,500, 1,600 years that are going to be dead if nothing changes in a couple decades to a century. Whole European cultures. Why? They're not having children. They're not having children. And so th- those countries are going to be replaced by cultures that are, which are often Islamic cultures in Europe right now. I'm not making any racial kind of stereotype. I'm talking philosophies of life. The Islamic worldview, whether you're white or, or Arabic, is one that embraces, for lots of philosophical, cultural, religious reasons, fruitfulness. White European modern culture has rejected it as an evil because of these narratives of freedom, personal autonomy, Uh, economic success and uh, overpopulation climate control uh, serving the earth. So, in contrast to that, and I would label that, if I had to find a label that I think would make people see reality, I would call that kind of culture an orgy of death. That's what I'd call it. The the idea of this culture is to have as much fruitless sex as possible with as little commitment as possible that it's kind of success in this culture I'd call that an orgy of death and in contrast to that if we look at the glory and the goal and the counterfeits and the gospels related to Christian motherhood we'll find that God's vision for fruitful femininity is kind of a green thing it's a growing thing it's a very vibrant thing and and because it's a green growing vibrant thing it's a civilization nourishing thing in its in its heart Uh, So, like with motherhood, let's let's begin with the glory, or like we did with fatherhood. Let's begin with the glory of motherhood. Okay, and I just want to start by saying that a woman is a glorious thing. Okay, a woman is a glorious thing. I'm not just trying to flatter all of you in the room who happen to not have a Y chromosome. But a, a woman is a tremendously, amazingly glorious, glorious thing. A mother is a tremendously glorious, glorious thing. Okay, The reason that our culture has given us a vision for womanhood that is basically like a homogeneity of the sexes, trying to blend them together and make them into a mush, a sexless mush, is uh, that our culture at heart doesn't believe that an actual woman and a mother is a glorious thing. Do you understand that? Like The, the, the culture is trying to tell you that the way to value women is to do what I described at the beginning of this, that that's valuing women. That's not valuing women. That's taking everything peculiar to femininity and motherhood and actually marginalizing it as much as possible and then aiming to, to portray the glory of femininity as basically becoming a cut-rate man. That is utterly, utterly denigrating to women. That is, that does, that's not a vision for culture in the world that values women and, and what makes a woman a woman It's a a vision that actually, at heart, exists out of hatred for women. There's another principle that once you see it anywhere, you see it everywhere. And it's the principle that if a culture hates God, it will hate everything that reminds them of God. Okay, so human beings were created in the image of God. Why does our culture hate men so much and hate women so much? Because they remind them of God. They're like, every time you see a gloriously masculine man or a gloriously feminine woman, it's like just screaming, God is good. God is glorious. Look at the world he's made. Look at uh, the richness of his creation. Look at the fruitfulness of it. And and they can't stand it. And so they try to assault it as much as possible. So the glory of a thing is the effulgence. It's the overflow. It's the brightness of its goodness, the weighty goodness of a thing that's doing what it was made to do by God. So a woman who loves being a woman, a, a woman who is a godly, feminine woman, is a glorious thing. And the reality is that women like that adorn humanity, like adorn humanity. Like if you were to look at, a, a, I don't, do you guys have scrub oak here? You know what scrub oak is? Utah, we got a lot of scrub oak. You were talking about those forests that are kind of filled with brush and you can't walk through them. They're, they're full of life, but they're kind of boring. It's like if you were to compare that and then all of a sudden you just see this stately elm tree Growing up surrounded by like beautiful green turf. Like, that's a glorious, godly woman against the backdrop of humanity. It's a glorious, beautiful thing. And uh, it's a, a, like a smiling, fruitful, godly, joyful, gloriously feminine woman is, is like sun breaking through clouds after weeks and weeks of rain. Okay, so we need to begin, like I said last session, with this Puritan hermeneutic of surrender not suspicion to the Word of God. A hermeneutic of suspicion approaches the Word of God and says, I'm going to kind of be wary, and I need to guard myself against fully giving myself to this. Because if I give myself to this, I might lose myself. A hermeneutic of of surrender says, I'm going to find myself by giving myself to this text. I'm going to find myself by giving myself away to the Scripture. Um, uh, If we do that, we find that um, God's design is not a prison. It's, it's actually a trellis that, that life can flourish on. And look at this, uh, Psalm 128, which I'm, I think, did you read that or Psalm 127? Psalm 1. 127. Interestingly, Psalm 127 is one of the two Psalms Solomon wrote, and it's about the home. I think that's really interesting. But Psalm 128, 3, uh, says, this is the, the fruit of the, uh, uh, part of the fruit of uh, the life of a righteous man. Part of like, you'll know a righteous man if this exists in his home. And part of it is that your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Part of what it looks like if you're a godly man and you have a godly legacy is that your wife will look a certain way. Again, we have headship on display here. We have uh, husbands taking responsibility, leading, biblical fatherhood, all of that. Downstream of that, uh, part of the implication of that is godly, fruitful uh, femininity. Godly, fruitful femininity. Uh, over and over in scripture, the glories of motherhood are the glories of growth. They're the glories of uh, green things, soil, multiplication. And what that means is that uh, at the heart of femininity, and, and particularly motherhood, is uh, a woman as force multiplier. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, force multiplier. For, force multiplier is, is, is like a, a war term. I don't, I'm t- teaching on motherhood, and I'm using war imagery. I don't know if this is ideal, but we're going to run with it. Force multiplier is anything that makes everything in your army more effective. It's like I've got a guy with a gun. A force multiplier is something that makes him much more effective. An example would be if you have inside information about the tactics and locations of your enemy. All of a sudden, he knows where to point, right? It's a force multiplier. It's something that makes everything else more effective and more fruitful. Uh, The glory of motherhood is the glory of force multiplication, okay? I give my wife money. This is, like, just my home. I give her money. And she makes a house with it. She makes a home with it. She makes food with it. She makes uh, children who are loved well and nurtured throughout the day with it. So I'm giving her something essential to her job. I'm doing what Paul told me to do, provide for my family. But I, I, can't, I can't take that money and make it grow the way it's supposed to by myself. I give my wife that money, and she makes it in a household. And I'm, Not to get weird, but you know, a man gives his wife seed, and she makes kids. She's a field, like he plants seed, and she gives him, with this like, insignificant little thing, she gives him a human with an immortal soul. That's amazing, that's amazing. Why would our culture take that, which is at the heart of the glory of femininity, and say, ah, that's kind of peripheral and optional. I can't do that. Masculinity couldn't do that with all of the genetic labs in the world in a 1,000 years. Okay, I built uh, a, a house it was empty, and I gave it to my wife, and now it's full of smells, glorious smells, and food. And I go there all the time, and it's, and it's also full of her, which is awesome. So it's a place where I want to be. Um, she took that house, she made it a schoolhouse where those children with immortal souls are going to be made into men and women in my house. Without her, she's a force multiplier. I'm a guy with a gun. She's the inside information direct... Like, she is making it more and more effective. So the glory of motherhood is the glory of multiplying image bearers with full stomachs and fat souls and dirt under their fingernails, which is a glorious thing if you have children. Um, the glory of masculinity and fatherhood is like the glory of taming a wilderness, uh, killing an enemy, and winning a woman. Making a new family. It's a glory with sharp edges. Uh, The glory of femininity is the glory of, and motherhood particularly, is the glory of completing, help, fruitfulness, multiplication. Uh, It's the glory of replication. And so our culture would would lie to to women and tell them that their glory is to be as good of an imitation of that masculine vision as they can. That that's where glory is to be found. And in order to do that, our culture has to make the home look like a prison, It has to make the home look like a prison. It has to say, man, wouldn't you do anything to just not be this? Wouldn't you do anything to be not this? And it just so happens that the this is exactly what Paul describes in the word of God. The this we're trying to avoid from that cultural narrative is exactly what God prescribes for us. Okay, so let's talk about the goal of motherhood before I go on and on and make this as long as the last one. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about three parts with this particularly. Again, we're building each time here. Jared laid down a foundation. We built some, some fatherhood foundation. And now we're building motherhood on top of that. These are all interdependent. So keep in mind everything I said last time. But the first aspect of the goal of motherhood, what does successful motherhood look like, is that motherhood is aimed at fatherhood's mission. Motherhood is aimed at fatherhood's mission biblically, that she helps her husband accomplish his God-given task of colonizing and cultivating the world into a green, growing thing with God's image bearers. So she joins him in his mission. It's his mission. It's his house. And she joins in that and actually makes it effective. She joins in that and completes it, meaning that it's not without her. It's it's not complete without her. And this is exactly what we see from the very, very beginning in Genesis, that God made the man and he gave the man a job before the woman was there. Go, and I want you to name all the animals and take dominion and all these things. Don't do this, do that. And what we see is that man is given a job, his aim for his whole life, and if you read the implications, for the lives of his ancestors, is to subdue and colonize and cultivate the world into this garden of the glory of God. That's his job. Uh, And then God made the woman from the man. He made the woman from him and for him. Paul puts it like this. Paul says the woman was made for the man and not the man for the woman. Okay, So he's telling us something about who has the mission and who is made for the one with the mission. The the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. I know all this is radically offensive. And if I said this like in most public places, people would somehow find rotting fruit and throw it at me. But this is the Bible. I'm just reading it out loud. Paul says that. For the man, he reasons this way. He's like, hey, I don't think that the church should function like this with respect to masculinity and femininity and preaching and teaching and eldership. For the woman was made for the man and not the man for the woman. So it's just Paul. Like this is, We either have to deal with it or not believe it. It's just, this is what Paul says. So as Paul says the woman was made for the man, not, not man for the woman. God gave her to him as an essential, irreplaceable helper, completer. Hebrew, this weird phrase, ezer kenegdo," which is like helper suitable. It's a hard word to translate. It's another word you see a lot of translations of. And it basically means um, something that completes, helps, is essential. It's not the whole, but it's not necessarily just a part. It's like something that's more than the sum of its parts is happening when this ezer kenegdo comes with this adam, with this man. Something greater than just those two, two plus two, one plus one happens. We're not polygamists. One plus one, not two plus two. Uh, Right? So, totally distracted now. Uh, Okay, so everything we built in the first lecture on fatherhood is highly relevant, if that's true. Because if the mission of motherhood is to come alongside her husband, making his mission her mission, and helping him complete it in a thousand ways he couldn't otherwise complete then we have to remember, what is his mission? Well, his mission, very simply, is to raise up his children in the fear and understanding of the Lord, in this paideia of the Lord. So what's her mission? It's that. It's that. It's not that in a way that dethrones the man or or, or subverts him and says, that's my mission, now you go sit down because men are basically idiots, and I'll do it. No, it's a way that, again, if they're working in complementarity which is the, that where we got the word complementarian from, then they will work together and they'll be able to accomplish the mission in a way they otherwise couldn't. And think about how fundamentally that's true. The man could not be fruitful by himself. If you have a packet of carrot seeds and no dirt and sun, you don't get carrots. You get carrot seeds. It's very boring. It's a bad salad. Okay? You need both. You can't, if you have Adam by himself, it's like, even if he was immortal, it'd be a very boring world. Even if Adam never sinned and just lived forever, kept eating at the tree of life, and he was just, oh, here I'm, that's a pig, I named the pig. Hi, pig, how are you doing? Oh, like hi, zebra. It's boring. He's just there by himself. There's no multiplication, and what fails to happen is that Im- the image of God fails to multiply over the face of the earth. How will the glory of God cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea? By covering the earth in image bearers of God. By covering the earth in his image, bearers at peace with him through Christ. Okay, so we need the woman, we need the man. You can't, and, and we need each of them to be doing what they are, or it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Uh, so, the goal of motherhood first is to help her husband perform his God-given duty. So number two, the goal of motherhood. Motherhood is aimed at bringing life. Okay, The blessed man of Psalm 128, like we looked at, is this fruitful vine at his table. The blessed man is the, is the man with a fruitful vine at his table with the children-like shoots from her. Again, the language of motherhood, I'm not going to belabor this, is the language of green growing, multiplying things. Okay, And what I want you to think about now when you're thinking about uh, motherhood being aimed at bringing life is what that fundamentally means as we stick the landing into your life. Like, What does that mean for day-to-day motherhood? What it means is a lot of work. What it means is that motherhood is aimed at work. The man, the man was aimed at work. He was, he was made to be a working thing, even before sin. So, so was motherhood. Not the same work, not working the soil the way he works the soil, but working the offspring, working his offspring. Um, when you look at the, the, the way that growth happens in Scripture... I'm trying to think of how to phrase this maybe more helpfully than I have written down here. Think about Paul's metaphor for uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. That's probably a good place to start. Think about how Paul says multiplication happens. So so Jesus is like this seed that fell to the earth and died. That's the cross and the burial of Christ. And through that, if he hadn't done that, he couldn't have germinated and come up and borne fruit 10, 20, 50, 100 fold. But he did. He went to the ground and he died, and he sprung up, and life happened in multiplication. What's the image? Life happens through death. Life happens through giving away. Life happens through the giving away of yourself. And so when you think about how this relates to the life-giving capacity of motherhood, it only ever happens through giving yourself away. A woman gives herself away to her husband, and then she gives herself away to her children. So life happens through being given away. Life happens through mess and death and, and pain and toil is the implication. I know, like especially when we add the curse into this, that's how life happens. Proverbs 14.4 says, where there is no ox in the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So if, if, if Solomon wrote Proverbs 14.4 today, I'm convinced that he would have said, where there are no children the shiplap in the kitchen is spotless, okay? But abundant, abundant joy comes through the scrawls of the toddlers. It's like, this is the implicate, if you want fruit in life, you have to embrace being given away and toil and, and, and hardship and death even. Uh, built into the idea of motherhood, the, the, the built into the goal of motherhood is the idea of gain through being given away. And so lastly, number three, motherhood is aimed at tending, cultivating, and turning a profit on that gain in the household garden. So she's aimed, number one, at the father's mission, which is fruitfulness, and then uh, raising children up in the paideia and the nuthesia of the Lord. Then she's aimed at bringing life through giving herself away, tending and nurturing. And then lastly, this works itself out in cultivating and turning a profit on uh, on that gain in the household garden garden. We have a fertile field where people are being grown. That's the crop here. People. Immortal, sold people. She gives away herself to her husband, and then she gives away her body even to her children to grow and nurture them, and then she continues giving herself away for their sake. And now we have the constituent parts of a household. Like that, those are the constituent parts of a household. Now we've had God bring together the seed in the soil, and now we have a growing thing, uh, is the implication. And what I want you to see is that just as motherhood is fundamentally the act of bearing fruit through giving oneself away, so the household economy is about turning a profit through giving the household away, in a sense. So motherhood is aimed at using the things, using all of the things, the husband, the resources, the house, all of these things, even the children themselves, in order to serve the people and thus serve the world. Right? You, you, again, people are not resource suckers, people are resources. And so when you have children and raise them, you are contributing to the world. You're not taking away from the world. The world wants you to have that totally upside down and believe that they want you to think about your kids in terms of their carbon emissions. That they're, oh, they're going and they're producing more carbon. Volcanoes do that, that's, that's fine. People are resources, people are resources. People tame wildernesses. People figure out how to desalinate salt water and make it into drinkable water. People, people are the ones who make dirt into iPhones. Like people are the ones who do this. Not animals, not rocks, people do, people are resources. And so motherhood aims to turn a profit on, on, on the people for the world or on the things for the people and the world. Her household domain is a place where comfort and energy are given away and used up for the sake of people. So this is not a vision for motherhood that is like a sterile, Instagrammable model home to be gazed at, at all. It's like a working farm. And if you've been at both, you know the difference. Because there's like farmhouses is in style right now, and I put shiplap in my bathroom. I'm not making fun of you if you have shiplap in your house. But you know the difference between a working farm and a model home. It's, it's, It's just... It's, it's obvious when you walk into it. And the thing about a working farm and a model home is that a model home doesn't really serve anybody. It's just there to be looked at. A working farm serves people. It serves lots of people. People are matured in it, and the fruit nourishes people from it. Motherhood is aimed at using houses like that, like farms, to grow people. So there's two highly relevant texts that we need to read. One is from Paul's letter to Titus. I've been referencing it uh, obliquely, but let's, let's look at it. In Titus 2, verse 3, Titus 2, verse 3, this is the instruction that, uh, this is again Paul the Apostle instructing a pastor in how to pastor local churches, how to pastor pastors in local churches, basically saying, if the church is a household, which it is, this is the kind of households I want in that household. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. And this is what he says is the reason why, that the word of God may not be reviled. So, So the implication is if we don't do this, there's something about the word of God that's going to be reviled. It's going to be spit on if we don't do this. It's going to be spit on. So Paul's vision here is for intergenerationally fruitful Christian households where godly older women who have lived and turned a profit on their households are now teaching younger women, Paul calls, to do what is the good, which is, as you look at his description, is basically for young women to be mistresses of their domain. Uh, he, He particularly uses this... Greek word, it's a compound Greek word, it's translated workers at home in the ESV, it's from two Greek words, one is oikos and one is despot, and you've probably heard the word despot before, right, like, oh man, he's a despot, it's not a good word usually, usually we like Fidel Castro, he was a despot, or uh, Putin, he's a despot, it's like a tyrannical ruler, okay, oikos means home. So what is he saying that he wants the ladies to be? Tyrannical rulers of their home. Okay, he's not actually saying that, but it, that'd be a root fallacy. But he is saying, if you look at the structure of this word, it's the idea of being a, a ruler at home in a sense, a ruler of the home, a mistress of the domain. This, this is the household is like her garden, her garden. The man's gone and chopped all the trees down, and he's fought off the wolves, and he's cleared the stumps, and there's a field now, and then they plant together, and now there's fruit that's coming up, and he goes out, and he keeps like fighting the wolves and bringing the food back, and he says, tend the garden. This is the garden. And if she leaves the garden and goes out and says, actually, I'm going to get my AR-15, and I am going to go out into the wilderness too, and I'm going to do my best imitation of you, the garden gets left. The garden just sits there. It's It's it grows weeds. It doesn't grow properly. It's not fruitful. There's not a profit being turned on it. Paul's vision is for fatherhood and motherhood to work together to, to turn a profit in this home. Okay. One of the clearest examples of what this can look like in the world this is a descriptive, not a prescriptive text is uh, Proverbs 31. Again, I know like you were waiting for it. Like it took us <laughs> however long. <laughs> Wait, man, he's going to. He's going to dig up Proverbs 31 on me, isn't he? I am. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Proverbs 31, let me just read for you verses 10 through 31. This is. We're not going to it. just read it. Um, this is what this looks like, a fruitful motherhood at home. An excellent wife, who can find? It's getting harder and harder. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. I want you to tally gain words, profit words. She does him good, not harm all the days of her life. She seeks... And okay, I, I said I wasn't going to exposit it, but just really quick. Notice how her orientation is towards him. Don't be offended by it, just but see it. Her orientation is towards him. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax, works with willing hands. She is like the ships of a merchant. She brings... Today, that would be like saying, she's like the fleet of trucks that Walmart deploys. Right? <laughs> She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night, provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She's got household servants. Like, this is a big household. Think about Abraham's household. Abraham's household had a standing army of 318 fighting men. That was a household. Okay, that, that, that's the kind of profit we're talking about here. Okay? She uh, gives portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and make her arms strong. B- Biblical Christian motherhood is a strong thing. It's not a weak thing. It's a strong thing. It's it's she's she's got strong arms. She's working. She's she doesn't need a gym. The world is her gym. Like this is she doesn't need yoga pants in two hours at Pilates every day because the world is her gym. She's got five kids. Like what I don't know how many calories you wanted to burn in a day, but you get two thousand per kid per day. I don't know, if, if you meet my kids, you'll believe it. Meet Ransom and Valor, you'll believe it. She dresses herself with strength to make her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff. and her, she's, she's master of feminine arts. Her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Uh, she's not afraid of snow. For her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Her husband is a local politician. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength again, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She's not bitter. She's not worried. She's not anxious. She's laughing. She has a smile on her face. She's a warm woman. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teachings of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also when he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but youth surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Uh, most nights at dinner, we do a table liturgy. And this is one of the lines that... Um, whoever's leading, usually me, leading the liturgy will say to my wife, many women have done well, but you've exceeded them all. And all the children have to say amen at the end of it. And Sometimes they don't want to say amen because their left buttock is still stinging. From- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Others are rising up and honoring her. Give, give her the fruit of her hands uh, and let her works praise her in the gates. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. Sex appeal is only good, good for being given away. That's what it's good for. Okay, let's talk about some counterfeits before I totally, totally run out of time. Her household is not a spa, it's a farm. Okay, counterfeits of this. Man, I really wrote that down. Some of the things I'm like, that's, oof. Okay, the nag. Let's talk about the nag. Uh, (laughs) Counterfeit. This is like, again, I'm not making this up. This is just from the Bible. It's over and over, warned against, counterfeit motherhood is, is nagging. She's not a mistress of her domain. She tries to control her domain through nagging. Uh, she, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down, Proverbs 14.1. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Like, I'd rather have uh, some cold little Caesars than some wagyu ribeye, provided that my wife is nice to me. That's any man. Ask him, would you rather have a ribeye steak and your, your wife is mad at you and nagging you and, and, and rude to you and disrespecting you, or just like a really happy, pleasant a wife who's smiling after the kids go to bed, maybe, you know i Like, I'd rather have the second one. I'm going to stop before I have to disqualify myself. Uh, Proverbs 21, 9 and 19. Better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So one of the lies that, that mothers are prone to believe is that they can quarrel and nip and nag and insult and disrespect their households in obedience and fruitfulness. It just doesn't work. Um, the most powerful tools in a, in a mothering tool belt are respect. Respect. This is why Paul sums up all his instructions in Ephesians 5 to wives by saying, he says, Husbands, see that you love your wives. Wives, see that you respect your husbands. It's that simple. You're, you're, he's like giving you a life hack there. Your husbands, this is what they run on. If you want influence with them, do this, respect him, respect the heck out of him. find something and respect it. Make it real, but, but respect him, and, and you will have influence. Uh, you can 't gain influence through disrespect long term. Uh, first cousin of nagging is kind of the control controlling woman, and this is again part of the curse of sin is that it it lands right in the, the heart of a woman 's peculiar domain um, where In Genesis 3, we see that the curse of sin is that her desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. That word for is kind of the word, uh, it's a controlling for, it's an inverting for. There's some glorious gospel pictures in it that by the time we get to Song of Solomon with the son of David who wins his bride, uh, her desire is for him again, except it's godly and beautiful. The gospel redeems this curse, and yet one of the lies that women would be prone to believing is that they can actually uh, control their husbands, manipulate their household into, uh, through rule and through basically trying to upend his headship in the house. And what you do is you don't end up not making him the head, you just end up making him an impotent head and you a bad head. It's, it, you, you, you can't change reality at the end of the day, but you can make life miserable, okay? Uh, the false prophet, one of the, one of the um, proverbs we read was that it actually not just better to live on a desert land than with a quarrelsome wife, but also with a fretful woman. One of the things that women are, are, are very prone to in ways that I think men aren't as prone to is anxiety, anxiety, fear. There's a reason in First Peter that Paul says he praises Sarah for calling Abraham Lord and actually points out that she did so fearlessly without fear. So part of the glory of Sarah in that moment was that she had faith and not fear. She wasn't living in anxiety. Okay? And, and so often, one of the things that happens when you worship a thing that's not God is if that thing is vulnerable to moth and rust and thieves and uh, asthma and doctor's visits, which children are, if you worship your children and the household, instead of worshiping God and using your household to worship Him, you'll be very anxious You'll be very anxious all the time. You'll be trying to worry yourself into the future. It just makes you a false prophet. It makes you a false prophet. It makes you anxious. Who of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to a span of life? Nobody. The last one, this is the, this is the most central to our culture, I think, is this counterfeit of biblical, glorious Christian femininity and motherhood, the 40-year-old, 20-year-old. This was very simple and very pervasive. I know, I know. Uh, if this, just never put this online. Um, <laughs> here's what the world is telling women. You're an object, and your greatest power as an object is in maintaining the sex appeal of a really hot 20-year-old. Literally. Almost every cultural narrative lands there somewhere. You are an object, and the most power you're ever going to have is in being a really, really attractive 20-year-old. The body of a really attractive 20-year-old. Motherhood... Stretches you out, inflates you, it rearranges things. The seed falls to the ground and it dies. Gain comes through death. It only ever does. Life, death, resurrection. Life, death, resurrection fruit. That's the pattern that God's built into the world to preach the gospel. Okay, so women have to give themselves away to varicose veins and stretch marks and weight gain and you know they have to give their bodies away to not be 20-year-old anymore. And, and what our culture wants women to believe their greatest power is in just clinging to that as long as possible. Pretending for the next season of life that you're still that, even though you can no longer really pretend, until you're just miserable. It, and it's like clinging to a, it, it's like a tulip trying to cling to its blossoms. It's just, they were, there. They, they, they were, they were good, they were there. Feminine beauty is glorious and good. Like, the 20-year-old feminine beauty is amazing. I married a 19-year-old woman, and I was very pleased to do so. It was amazing. And I'm glad that she's 29. And I'll be glad when she's 39. I'll be glad when she's however many, you know, 14, 15 kids from now. I'm, I'll be glad. When, when, like, the last pregnancy, those varicose veins look painful and just, man, but I'm so glad for my son. I'm so glad for my son. Who, whom we got through that. It was worth it. It was worth it. Okay, don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. Our bodies were not made to cling to sex appeal. Our bodies were made to be given away. Okay, Men and women, but women are so prone to believing the lie that your body was not made to be given away. It was, be, it was made to manipulate and hoard. It was made to be a tool of power. That's not what it is. It's not what it's for. It's for life. Okay, don't worship at the Temple of Aphrodite in Lululemon. Okay, moving on. Motherhood and gospel. Okay, we noted that the curse of sin lands right in the heart of the home. Uh, pain in bearing and raising children, right, all of that. And, and, and what I think we all need to hear often is that the Lord Jesus, when he saves, he, he delights to walk right into the center of where the curse has landed for us particularly. Um, he, he likes to, to redeem men who have been cowards and failures, by walking in as the better David who was not a coward and stood down giants and slayed dragons and then lift you up and make you like him. Okay, uh, Jesus loves to walk into the heart of the, of the curse on, on motherhood and femininity and bring life. There's this peculiar passage in 1 Timothy. It's for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's many different opinions about how to interpret this verse. I I believe what Paul is saying is that she will be saved uh, through the curse. Not by means of the curse, but passing through it. So um, think about this. like You will be saved through the flood. You're not saved, Noah wasn't saved by the flood, he was saved by the ark that carried him through the flood. I think that what Paul is telling us is that she will be saved even through the where the, the very heart of the curse lands in her life, which is in childbearing, pain and toil and childbearing. That Jesus uh, loves to walk into the heart of the curse and actually save right there. He, he, he saves, meaning he'll bring you safe to the other side through being given away and giving your body away and dying and all of that and pain and toil and Women died even way more in childbearing when Paul wrote that. I mean, this is a very real situation. It's still very real. And what Jesus is saying is that if you give yourself away and you you lean into the glory of being what you are he will save you from all of the effects of the curse in that, even through death. Even, even when you die with your body all stretched out and all kind of rearranged and having born all kinds of children and, and then dealing with those children for the next 40 years of your life, like, he will save you through all of that. He will save you through all of that. He will walk right into death and he will bring life. And so if I may be so bold, ladies, let the word of God... Exhort you to be gloriously feminine creatures. To be what you are with joy. To lean into it. To say, I am so delighted to be a woman and a mother. I'm delighted to be that. Don't waste your time wanting to be something else. Don't waste your time. It's a waste of time. Don't idolize somebody else's calling and, and situation. Lean into it. Dress yourself with strength. The Lord will make your arm strong. He'll put your hand to the work. It'll be hard work, but it'll be good work. And it really is the work of Christian civilization.